All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, as already been said, welcome to Riverwood. Um, I was uh, curious, uh, wondering what the new seating arrangement might do. Uh, some of you, you look a little lost. Uh, it, it feels weird. You're not sure you're right in the spot. You, you are. Uh, it, you're in a good spot. Uh, if you are a first-time guest with us, welcome. Really, really glad you're here, whether you're with us in person or you're joining us online. Uh, we have some uh, family notes is what we call it, our announcements. Uh, if you navigate uh, to uh, HTTP uh, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash notes R-W. That's capital N, notes, and then capital R, capital W. You can see our notes today, our family notes, and you can hear those announcements. Um, if you're a first-time guest, one that I want to draw your attention to is uh, we give $5 for every first-time guest that comes. We don't give the $5 to the guest. We give it to Compassion International. I didn't say that right. Uh, we give it to Compassion International. Compassion is an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work with churches all around the world, helping kids get some food, some clothing, and education. But most of all, they connect through these local churches and help these children hear about Jesus. And so we would love to make just a small difference in the life of a child by honoring your presence with us today. So if you're here in person, there should be a connection card somewhere nearby. All you need to do is put your name on there, maybe your contact info if you're comfortable giving that, but then mark that first-time guest, and we will be sure to donate that on your behalf. If you're joining us online, just simply send an email to riverwood at weareriverwood.org, and we will do the exact same thing for you. Uh, a couple announcements on that uh, digital handout that I want to draw your attention to because they're time sensitive. Um, this Tuesday, we are serving at the Food Pantry. Uh, we do this every month. Um, in a moment, I'm going to talk about VBS because we have a, quite a few of our church family serving at VBS. We need to try to do what we can to make sure that we've got some people able to help with the food pantry. So if you are available at all, whether that's the 415 setup shift or the 550, or about 5 o'clock, the distribution shift, we could really use your help. Uh, so just show up down at Vineyard, uh, Embassy Vineyard across from Walgreens. Uh, we're serving in the back alley. Uh, if you've never served before, it's okay. You just show up and someone will give you an assignment, a job to do, and you'll be able to jump in and help out. And then, as I mentioned, this week is VBS. Uh, we are partnering with three other area churches to help give these kids the greatest VBS they have ever had. After having to not be able to do it last year, we're super excited to get to do it again. Uh, this year, because the schools were not allowing us to do it, we are hosting it at Life Church, uh, way on the other side of town. I mean, it's just so far away. Uh, but you can find it. You'll get there. Uh, uh, if you are volunteering, uh, we need you to go and register today. Tonight, there is a uh, mandatory volunteers meeting. So we really could use you. Um, I'm serving as a uh, small group leader for the week. Uh, and I don't think I have a an assistant yet. Uh, so that shows we, we still need some volunteers. So if you are available at all, even if you can't do all four nights, even if you could only do like one or two, please still go sign up. We could use your help. We'd love to have you be a part of it because we're going to give these kids the time of their life. But most of all, we're going to help these kids here that they matter to God, that they are treasured. So it's also not too late to register your kids, even if it's only for one, two nights, if your schedule allows for that. We want your kids to come and be involved. And it's also not too late for your neighbor's kids to come and be involved. It's going to be a blast. A lot of work has gone into it, so we want to bless these kids, and we'd love you to be a part of it. Well, today we get to jump back into the book of Mark. And way long ago, like in another lifetime, when I was romantically pursuing my wife, I asked her to be my girlfriend. And she said, no. 
Turns out she said she was going to be a single missionary. And if she's going to be single, then she probably shouldn't date anyone. Well, we were married 17 months later. Uh, My charm just wore her down. And so because the joke is because she was wrong about being single, we decided to let her be right about being a missionary. And so during our first year of marriage, we began to investigate all of these different overseas missionary opportunities. Early on, one jumped out at us. And so we decided this is the one we want to pursue. So we went through the entire application process, sent it all in, and a few weeks later, we received a letter. We eagerly opened it up to discover that we had been rejected. I I couldn't believe it. Like, I I was honestly stunned. I I really thought that Leanne and I were exactly the type of couple that a, a mission agency would win. We were young, we had energy, we loved Jesus, we were, you know, graduating with with honors, we had almost no debt from college. I mean, we were, I thought, just like super well-primed, anyone would scoop us up. But it turns out that in our application, on one doctrinal issue, we were a little open-handed on, but for them, they were closed-handed. Like, to them, this was a deal-breaker. Now, Leanne handled the rejection far more mature than I did. Leanne looked at it and said, well, if they're going to be that closed-minded on such a minor thing, we wouldn't want to work with them. But that's not how I saw it. I saw it as an indication that I was a failure. I wasn't good enough. I was so mad. I was so frustrated. I mean, their doctrinal stance had nothing to do with the gospel. It would not come into play at all in what we were going to be doing overseas. So I, I couldn't believe it. For them, what was a deal breaker? for me, was a heartbreaker. Any of you ever been there? Ever been rejected? And I don't just mean rejected by like, you know, a a friend. I mean rejected by like a group. You tried out for the team. You applied for the job. you, you, You tried to get into that school. But then you got the letter. You got the email that basically said no. And in that moment, you were hurt. Sad, frustrated, angry. You couldn't believe it. You, didn't, you felt like a failure. You didn't feel like you're good enough. You felt left out. Well, I have good news for you. You are not alone in your rejection. And I don't just mean because I'm a part of the rejection club. Actually, God is a member of the club of the rejected. God knows what it feels like. God has been a part of the Rejected Club. In fact, today, we're going to see he's the founding member of this club. And yet, what we're going to discover is his heart. We're going to see, yeah, God God gets hurt by rejection. We're going to see how he gets angry, how he gets frustrated, but we're also going to see how he loves. That while when you and I get rejected, oftentimes we pull away, God does the opposite. Because of his love, he draws close. Some of you, you're going to need to hear this today because maybe you're feeling rejected. You're feeling left out. You're feeling alone. Today, you're going to hear that God draws close to you no matter where you find yourself right now in life. I hope today is an encouraging message as we jump into Mark chapter 12. So let's pray and then we'll open up our scriptures. So Heavenly Father, uh, I realize that everyone listening to me belongs to you. They're your people. You know their stories. You know their hearts. You know what's happening right now in their lives. And so, Father, there is absolutely no way that I, as a single human, could be able to 
penetrate the, the cloud that is, is around their hearts. Only you, God, can do that. So, Lord, I pray that you do what only you can do, that you would minister, that you would show yourself in, in a beautiful way, in a powerful way, in a loving way, and that today when people leave, they would be in awe of you, in awe of Jesus, that even though you, Jesus, have been rejected, you still drew near to us. Help us to be encouraged by that thought. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 12. Uh, if you uh, are a first-time guest with us, uh, we open up the scriptures every single week. So if you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We put the scripture up on the screen for you. But I just really encourage you, get yourself a Bible. Now, at Riverwood, if you're here with us in person, you might notice a few people pulling out their phones. Or if you're online, we are fine with digital Bibles. So uh, if you're on the uh, church online platform, just simply click on that Bible tab and you can navigate there. But I just encourage you, download a Bible to your phone or, or go out and get yourself a, a paper copy of the scriptures. Go to Walmart or go on Christian book.com or if you want see me after the service i've got some bibles in my office i would love to give one to you and let you make it your everyday bible we just have a conviction that what our world needs are people who will love like jesus loved and live like jesus lived but the only way that that's going to happen is if we get to know god and get to know the heart of jesus and we learn that through the scriptures so we want you to have a bible um, we also have been in a series in Mark for about the last, I would estimate, year, year and a half. I didn't go and look. Um, but we've been interrupting it. Uh, like just recently, we did a little short series in the Proverbs. You know, it, in January, we did 21 Days of Prayer. Last December, we did Christmas. So we've been interrupting it. So today, we get to come back to it for a few weeks here. And when we finished up uh, in May, we finished with chapter 11. So that means we're ready for chapter 12 today. And what was happening back in chapter 11 was Jesus was having, I, I guess you could say like a, a slightly contentious conversation with some Jewish leaders. They were trying to trap him, and in the process, they ended up trapping themselves. And in that moment, Jesus shifts his teaching, going from just answering their questions and having this dialogue to now trying to communicate something to them. That's where we pick it up in chapter 12. So join me in verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them, the Jewish leaders, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, the landowner, sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, oh, they will respect my son. But these tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. 
the way Mark begins chapter 12, it, it sounds like Jesus began to actually teach many parables. But for our purposes, the readers, he just captures one. And it kind of plays into what we saw back in chapter 11. As the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were trying to discredit Jesus, they were asking him questions, trying to trap him. Their hope was by trapping him, they would expose him as a fraud, the people would no longer be drawn to him, and then things could go back to normal. But as I already said, in their process of trying to trap Jesus, they ended up trapping themselves. Because they asked him a question, and Jesus just responded, well, you know what, I'll answer your question if you'll answer a question for me. And they refused to answer it. So Jesus is like, well, if you won't answer my question, I want to answer yours. You see, there was a power struggle going on. These priests did not accept the authority of Jesus. But Mark has been showing us over and over and over how Jesus is the authority. And so Jesus, realizing the power dynamic that is going on here, shifts to this parable that kind of reveals it. In chapter, uh, um, uh, on the surface of this parable, it, it sounds just like a, a landowner, buy some land, plants a vineyard, and then hire some tenants to, to maintain it and take care of it. But then when the harvest comes, they, they have a little disagreement over who has the rights to these things. And, and so that's how the whole story unfolds. Now, as Jesus would have began his story, I, I imagine he's got the, the Jewish leaders there, but his disciples are probably with him. Maybe there's a small little crowd listening in. And as Jesus begins to teach, people are listening. It doesn't sound weird. Because in his day and age, it was common for some wealthy landowner to lease out the land to these tenant farmers. That was not strange at all. In fact, it was a really good relationship. Many of these tenant farmers were not wealthy enough to own their own land and to farm. So this was the only way they were going to be able to earn a wage and provide for their family. In a worst case scenario, a landowner would give 50% of the crop to the tenant farmers. Often the terms were even more favorable toward the, the farmers. So they would get enough to then feed their family or to go and sell at market. And so this was their livelihood. But what would happen, what happened in Jesus' story is he takes the whole dynamic and turns it on its head. This is where his audience would really lean in and listen. Because normally the power would lie with the landowner. He would lay out the, the terms, will you agree to this? And the tenant farmers have to decide, well, yeah, I will agree or, or not. However, in this story, the tenant farmers act as if they have the power. That when the servant comes, they send him away empty-handed, and many of them they begin to beat and even kill. Now, this landowner is really, really patient, or really, really foolish, and he keeps sending these people to him. But what Jesus is doing is he's revealing. He's a master storyteller. Because again, remember, this is a parable. And in the words of the great theologian, Paw Grape from Veggie Tales. A parable is a story with a point. Jesus has a point. That's what we want to discover today. Thank you. I got at least one laugh from my paw grape. None of you laughed. I mean, we're talking about a vineyard and we got paw grape. All right. Yeah, my, I'm not funny. My, st my stand-up comedy uh, uh, career is, is over. Um, look at verse one there, if you still have your Bibles open. I, I forgot to put this one up on the screen, but look at verse one. Jesus says that a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And then he leased it, all right? So keep that imagery in mind. Many scholars believe that when Jesus begins this parable and says it that way, he's recalling Isaiah 5, one through seven. Listen to the first two verses of Isaiah 5. 
Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Uh, Listen again to the imagery here. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. All right, so you see the parallels here. You see the, the imagery. And so it's understandable that Jesus is drawing out of this. Now, Isaiah makes it very clear just a few verses later what he's talking about. Because he, like Jesus, is not just talking about a vineyard. There's something deeper going on. Down in verse 7, Isaiah writes this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So as Isaiah is talking about this vineyard, he's talking about Israel. And you heard there in verse 2 that Israel was producing not good grapes, but wild grapes. In other words, God created Israel to live in community with him, and therefore they would live out these righteous acts and be a blessing to the world. They would produce good grapes. However, the vineyard produced wild grapes. Another way to translate wild would be sour. Most people don't enjoy sour grapes. The people were being rebellious. They're not living in communion with God. They were not being that blessing to the world. And so that's why you see throughout the Old Testament, even in Isaiah, God sending prophets to try to call them to this. So so here's what this means. That if Israel is the vineyard, God is the landowner. He's the one who starts this vineyard. Which means back in Jesus' parable, we have these tenant farmers. See, God's the landowner, Israel's the vineyard, and he entrusts his vineyard to these stewards, to the priests. In in verse 12, did you hear it? That the priests sensed that this parable was about them? They're right. It is. Jesus is highlighting how they have been interacting with God. And they have not been faithful priests who've tended the people, drawing them to God and giving God what is his. They have, in a sense, been holding the power and trying to keep it to themselves. They're a little bit like a two-year-old who gets a toy and says, mine, when really mom and dad are the ones who bought it. And so technically it belongs to them. That's what these tenant farmers are doing. They're saying the vineyard is mine. I did all the work, so therefore the harvest is mine. Forgetting that they signed this lease with the the landowner saying that he should get a portion of it. And so Jesus is identifying this because underneath it all, Jesus is just merely recounting history. Throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, you see God send these prophets to Israel to help tend the vineyard, to help them produce good grapes. But oftentimes they're ignored or they're mocked or they're actually like beaten, removed, and some of them even killed. Uh, take Jeremiah, for instance. In Jeremiah chapter 20, we discover that Jeremiah is in stocks. The people are walking by and they're mocking him. Why? Because they don't like the message he brings. God is telling them, you must repent, you must change your ways. And they don't like to hear it. And so they put him in stocks. But do you know who it was that put him in stocks? It was the chief priest, a guy by the name of Pashur. It was the priests who were taking the very messengers from God and beating them, ignoring them, and pushing them out, trying to get the people to not listen to them, keeping it all for themselves. So Jesus telling this parable, yep, 
the, the priests were right. They sensed it. It's about them. Jesus is recounting all that had been happening in history. But Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't just tell them, well, here's what's been happening in history. Through his parable, he also tells them, well, here's about what is to happen. Because did you notice in verse 6 how the landowner says, well, I have a son. Surely they would respect my son. And that's what happened. God, the landowner, sent his son, his one and only son, into the world, into Israel, as a full Jew, to call the people back to God. And what did the landowners do? Most of you know the the Christian story. Jesus is killed. And it's the priests who arrest him, hand him over to the Romans to have him killed because they want him eliminated because they're sensing he's like taking over. He's threatening the way of life. They want to keep it for themselves. So Jesus is not only saying, oh yeah, this is what you guys have been doing. You know what? You're going to keep on doing it. It, this is what you're going to do to me. In other words, Jesus was rejected. He's rejected by the priests. He joins the club of the rejected. That's why one of Jesus' best friends, John, wrote this in his gospel. This is John 1, verse 11. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus knew when he came to earth that he was going to be rejected. Rejected by the priests, rejected by many of the people. Why why would he think that before the incarnation? As, As God the Son, before he takes on human flesh, why did he know he would be rejected? Because humanity has been doing it to God from the very beginning. As God the Son, he was there when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and rejected God and his plan. As God the Son, he saw what the people were doing, even during the time of Noah. Even as Noah is building an ark, telling the people, God is going to send a flood if you don't change your ways, the people continued to reject God. Jesus was there when Moses stood before the Pharaoh, telling him, this must change, you must let the people go, and the Pharaoh rejected God. And Jesus was there when the Israelite people were out in the wilderness and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the people get so tired of waiting for him that they build themselves their own golden calf, an idol to worship. Jesus has seen humanity reject him time and time again. So he knew when he was gonna step into this world, when he was gonna take on human flesh, that they would reject him, that he would not be received by his own. And, and don't get fooled. This rejection, it hurts. It's not like God is callous. It's not like God doesn't care. No, God is passionate for people. And, and keep in mind, this rejection, it's not by just some nameless uh, missions agency. It's not by some famous, faceless uh, uh, business uh, executives. No, his rejection was by his own, God's creation. And it hurt. Before we get to the hurt, though, we need to admit something. The reason Jesus is in the club of rejection is because we sent him there. I mean, yes, we are in the club with him, so he fully identifies with us. So I would hope that draws you to him. 
But we have to admit that the reason he's there is because of us. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit rejecting God, the rejection gene has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And it hasn't weakened over time. If anything, it's grown stronger. And so when we look at God, we end up acting more like the priest than we probably want to admit. We look at the things of our life and we say, mine. Like we do this with our jobs. We do this with our children. We do this with our bank account. We do this with our possessions. We hold these things and we say, it's mine. And if God even dares to say, no, actually, I I want you to give that to me. We act like the two-year-old saying, no, it's my vineyard. God showed this to me in my heart back in 2008 when he called me to church planting. You see, I loved my church. I loved my job. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the young adults that I ministered to. I mean, I loved everything. I loved where my family was at and, and just life. It was great. But then along comes a day where I sense God saying, I want you to leave it all and follow me. And I'm going to send you to plant a church. And I said, no. I rejected it. Because it's mine. It's my job. This is my family. That's my friends. I don't want to give it up. So I acted like the the priest, and I tried to get rid of the message. I tried to ignore it. And so I rejected God. We all do it. And what we need to realize is that rejection hurts. It hurts God. Jesus says this in that story, down in verse uh, uh, 10. He says to them at the end of his parable, have you not read this scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Throughout the New Testament, God uses several images for the church. Uh, One of the images that he uses, uh, like 1 Corinthians 14, uh, uses it also in Romans, is the idea of the church being a body. Talk about being the body of Christ. Uh, Another image that God uses is family. Uh, You can especially see this in Paul's letters when he writes to other Jesus followers and he calls them his brothers and sisters, even people he's never met. The the church is a family. Part of why we call ourselves the, the Riverwood family. But there's another image that God uses. We see this in Ephesians 2, and it's this idea of a building. Now, a church cannot be a brick-and-mortar building, right? The church is the people of God. I mean, they may use a specific building for their, their gatherings on Sundays and things throughout the week, but that building itself is not the church. We sometimes talk about it like it is. But God uses that image of a building to talk about the people. The people are like the bricks that get stacked on one another. And he says that the foundation are the apostles and the prophets, the ones who wrote the scriptures. So this is our foundation. But he says in there in Ephesians 2 that the cornerstone, the capstone, the most important piece of the building is Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is where the church begins. You can't have the church by, with, you know, if you eliminate the cornerstone, if you eliminate Jesus. It all begins with him. Back in ancient building practices, a cornerstone was exactly was, as it was said to be. It was a stone placed in the corner, and off of it, everything was measured. So if you got your cornerstone off, your building was going to be a little wonky. So you had to get the cornerstone 
right. And then you build everything off of that. That's Jesus. But did you hear what Jesus said? That the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So many of us are trying to build our lives and we're trying to build these stones of making some money, get enough for retirement. I gotta get these possessions. I gotta get the house. I gotta get the spouse. I gotta get the kids. I gotta stack all these things up to get the kind of life that everyone says I need to have in America. And oftentimes in that process, we reject the cornerstone. And when we reject Jesus, it hurts. Notice the landowner, God, his response. When they kill his son, verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He's angry. He's mad. He's planning retribution. It hurts. I don't think we realize that. That our rejection of the cornerstone, our rejection of God and his plans for us, it actually hurts him. But this is where things actually get amazing. You see, when we're rejected, like, like God, it, it hurts. We, we, we get sad. Maybe we get angry, frustrated. But oftentimes what happens is when we are rejected, we withdraw. A, a, a guy asks a girl out and gets told no. <laughs> kind of like me. And what does he do? He withdraws from her, from other girls for a time. A girl applies for a college or applies for a job. She gets told no. She withdraws for a few hours or a few days from her friends and her family. A, a potential author submits their manuscript to all of these publishers, gets told no, and they just they withdraw. They don't want to submit it to anyone else because they just don't want to take the rejection. Uh, just recently, I was able to catch up with a pastor friend of mine. His church is going through some, some changes, some good changes, but there are some people in the church who don't like the changes. And so they're rejecting the, the potential changes. But in the process, they've said a few things that have shown that they're not just rejecting the changes, uh, they're rejecting my friend. And as we were catching up, he admitted, he's been withdrawing from people in his church because it hurts. This is our natural response. When we step in and find rejection, we withdraw. But not God. You see, even though it hurts God, he doesn't withdraw. Even though it frustrates him, he still draws near. For instance, here in chapter 12, at, the, at, at verse 12, we see the, the uh, Jewish leaders leave. They walk away. They're, they're so frustrated by Jesus, they walk away. Guess what's going to happen? Next week, we're going to see them return. They're going to have another conversation with Jesus. Jesus doesn't withdraw from them. They have rejected him, and yet he stays. Throughout chapter 12, we're going to see him interacting with them. Or, or how about later in Mark? We're going to see the apostle Peter re, reject Jesus by denying him three times. And yet in John chapter 21, we see Jesus, after his resurrection, going and seeking Peter out, who's back fishing. He thinks he has failed as a disciple. And yet he, Jesus goes and finds him and restores him. Probably the greatest example is that when sinful humans rejected God, God the Son took on human flesh and entered into this world. He stepped toward us. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians Chapter 5. This is Ephesians 5, 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you notice the progression in there? Back in, we, we've talked about this before, so maybe you've heard of it. If not, I, I want you to see this. Back in verse 6, Paul starts off by saying that while we were still weak, Christ died for us. So some humans, when they encounter a weak person, they, they step back like a, a, a baby, an elderly person, maybe someone disabled. They, they, they don't know how to handle it, so, so they step back. Now, some people are super kind-hearted. They, they step too. Like, oh, a baby! You know, or, or you know, they, they like to go and serve at the, the Senior Citizen Center. Like, they, they see someone disabled, they, they go to them. They're drawn to them. But some people, they, they withdraw. They step back. But then the progression goes on. Down there in verse 8, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, now, now it's getting a little harder. When you encounter someone and their sin, sometimes you kind of go, ooh. You, you, you step back. You find out what they've done. And you're like, really? And, and, and so you want to pull away. That's why we have cancel culture. We find out these things that these various you know, celebrities and, and politicians and power people have done. And we find out something that they've done. And we just we want to get rid of them. We want them to go away. We withdraw. Now, if it's a close friend, maybe a family member, maybe you're willing to step toward them. But it gets harder when you start seeing someone's raw, disgusting sin. Sometimes you, you, you want to pull away, but not Jesus. But Paul wasn't done. Down in verse 10, he says this, for if while we were enemies, okay, now it's getting really, really serious. Because you see, an enemy is completely opposed to you. They are actively working against you, even desiring your destruction. When you encounter an enemy, if you encounter someone who's absolutely against you in everything, your first reaction is not, hey, come here, let me give you a hug. Your reaction is not, hey, you want to catch coffee sometime? No, your reaction is to step back. It's to withdraw because this person wants to do evil against you. They are completely opposed to you. So your first response is to want to get away, but not Jesus. Paul is saying here in Romans 5 that even while we were weak, sinful enemies of God who were completely opposed to God, Jesus Christ came to us taking on human flesh and going to the cross to die in our place. Our rejection hurt him deeply. It hurt him so much it killed him. And yet he willingly did it because he loves you. When God seeks to correct you, it is not because he's angry at you. It's like he sees you like a little kid playing with burning logs or playing out in the middle of the interstate. 
And he's trying to rescue you to pull you out because he loves you. God does not banish you because of the ways you've rejected him. He does, he's not sitting there trying to punish you. He's trying to work in you. He wants to shape and craft and hone you into that image of Jesus. That is why he comes. That is the heart of God. That is why we celebrate communion every single week. We recognize that Jesus Christ went to a cross to die for our sins. This means that if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have been rejecting him, what I encourage you to do is during this next holy moment to give your life to him. Most people, when they realize the truth of the gospel, they just simply say a prayer. They confess their sin, acknowledging what they have done against God. And then they realize that Jesus died on a cross for them. And so in their prayer, they just simply say, Jesus, because you gave your life for me, I now give my life to follow you. If you've never prayed that prayer before, I encourage you, as we here in our building celebrate communion, would you spend that time at your seat? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, don't worry about these elements. Instead, stay where you're at and deal with God. Because your rejection has hurt him your rejection is actually hurting you more. God loves you. He wants you. He desires you. You are a part of his vineyard. So he wants to draw you to him. So give your life to him today. Many of you, you're a follower of Christ. But maybe lately you've been rejecting him. Maybe you've been sensing God asking you to give something up and you've been saying no, I want you to know God loves you. Yeah, your rejection hurts. It's because he knows he's got something better for you. Had I not listened to God and eventually obeyed, I would miss out on you guys. And so if God is asking you to give something up, a job, a, 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 a money, a, you know, a, a, a vacation plan, your, your, something in your schedule, May you just take this next moment and, and deal with God on it and express trust. Would you just confess it? Repent. I also realize some of you right now, you're doing great. Like you and God are close and spiritual. I mean, like it is just, it is wonderful right now. Will you just take this next moment and just thank him? Thank him, the one who's the founder and member of the Club of the Rejected. Thank him for coming for you. Allowing you, a rejected one, to come into his presence and realize you are no longer a cast out. You now belong to him. So no matter where you're at spiritually, no matter what's been happening this week or this past month or this past year, may you right now let God's spirit surround you, minister to you. May you just deal with him honestly because he loves you. That is the heart of God. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that in these next moments as we partake of the communion elements, as we sing and as we all pray, that you would deal with us individually, that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do, that for the person right now who, who has never given their life to you, as they confess that sin and give their life to follow Jesus, that you would surround them and that they would sense your presence in a powerful way.
for the person that needs to confess how they've been rejecting you, even though they know the truth of the gospel. Will you surround them by your love? Would you encourage them and let them know that, that you want to work in them, you want to change this, you are not repelled by it, but you are drawing close to them. And for the person who just needs to worship you, may you just fill their heart and their mind with your love, with your grace, with your joy, and that as they walk out of here today, they would just be in awe yet again of how great you are. Because Jesus, even though we rejected you, the cornerstone of our lives and our faith, you still drew near to us. So we thank you that you forgive us for acting like priests sometimes. And instead, you forgive us and allow us to be your children. So God, thank you. May you minister in these next moments as we, we remember what Christ did for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.